Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, I'm Nicole Giantonio, the producer of the Elevate Together podcast. The impact episode you're about to hear features Dan Call and Caleb Bendix, Senior Associate General Counsels at Jabel. Our podcast host is Steve Harmon, COO and General Counsel of Elevate. Listen in as our guests outline two examples of implementing change within Jabil. The first features a procurement center of excellence and support model all about efficiency, including intake, triage, playbook support, and staffing. The second features the build-out of a fully automated NDA process. Dan and Caleb, welcome to the Elevate Together podcast. Let's start by having each of you share comments, a short description of your journey to where you are today. Dan, why don't you go ahead first? Sure. Hi, my name is Dan Call. I manage the global legal operations function for Jabil, which is a global manufacturing and product solution company based in St. Petersburg, Florida. And my journey has been quite extensive. I've been at Jabil now for four years. This is my second time. Jabil is the first company I went in-house with back in 2005 and have come back to set the legal operations function up. And it's been really fun and exciting. Prior to coming back to Jabil, I was the general counsel of Elevate and also had legal operations roles at both Oracle and NetApp. Thank you. Caleb, can you do the same? Sure. I currently serve as deputy general counsel for Jabil's Diversified Manufacturing Services Group. I started off my career in the public sector. I worked for the government. I was uh, in criminal practice as a litigator. And then I joined Jabil originally back in 2009, worked for a, a service group called the Aftermarket Division. And I left in 2014 to go work for Icor, which is a company that was run by the private equity firm Huntsman Gay. Returned back to Jabil in October of 2016. So I am also a second timer like Dan. And I've supported multiple legal functions here at the company, including procurement, real estate, as well as our customer segments for packaging, smart home and appliances and reduced risk products. That's quite the compliment to Jabil that you have two, what we describe internally as boomerang employees where you've both worked at Jabil before, left to do other things and either uh, missed it so much or, or recognized that there were new opportunities that you hadn't quite completed at Jabil to come back and, and complete the role. That's exciting stuff. We are here today. This is an impact podcast. So our goal is to talk about change that you've implemented within your legal department that has had a positive impact on your business. That is really our goal. We're hoping to cover at least two stories of change with a positive impact. Dan, if there's one example you want to provide and we'll go ahead and kind of unpack that. Yeah, definitely. It all revolves around our first engagement of Elevate back in 2019, I believe. I'd been back at Jabil for about a year. And the issue that we had, and I asked Caleb to join because he and I worked on this really hand in hand, was he was a victim of his own success. The procurement legal team that he led was being given a great deal more responsibility. And at the same time, Caleb was leveling up and becoming much more strategic and taking on other roles. We had integration of a major acquisition going on that was going to impact his procurement legal team. They had taken on another portion of the procurement responsibility and the sites were increasingly turning to them. As things happened to complete the perfect storm, we faced all those issues while facing the impact of a hiring phrase. Caleb could add a lot more color to that, but that was kind of my point of view of what he was facing and before we engaged with Elevate. And just carry on with what Dan said, we're a manufacturing company, so we operate on very 
thin margins. We don't like to add a lot of resources and costs. Our business is very keen on operating very efficiently. And we were lucky at the time to have what I call found resources. Actually, our local labor group had hired some folks who actually were attorneys, and we converted them into a center of excellence to support that procurement function. We knew we weren't going to be able to hire additional resources, and and we were really racking our brain for a solution. And that's when Dan presented this opportunity that we hadn't considered previously, and it turned out to be quite the success. One question I think many of our listeners would be interested in is the distinction between, is this indirect procurement that we're describing, meaning the procurement of things that are related to the operation of Jable generally, things that aren't included in Jable's products directly, or what I would consider direct procurement, meaning things that go into your products themselves. Was there a distinction or did you use this approach to solving the problem across both categories? Well, that's a great question, Steve. Procurement, we actually are talking about both direct and indirect. So globally, we were not only supporting the acquisition of components and raw materials that go into the products, the many different products that we make for all of our customers, but also the indirect components, materials, tools, services, contracted items that need to be acquired for us to run our business and manufacture for our customers. That is part of the scope, as well as we also support construction and engineering procurement and design activities as part of that group. So there's a a bit of a broad mandate for that team. And it was uh, quite a challenge at the time because the group was relatively fresh in its role and we had to really train them up quickly and work very efficiently to deal with that. And as Dan had mentioned, we were kind of hitting the perfect storm of having this major acquisition. One of our key healthcare customers had presented us with an opportunity back at that time where we were able to acquire several different sites across multiple geographic regions, spanning multiple countries. We knew the due diligence was going to require a lot of intense time and effort to manage. There were multiple languages that needed to be considered with the contract documents. And on top of that, we were just getting off the ground with the center of excellence and identifying a process to manage and support triage of all the procurement matters that were coming in. That's very interesting and helpful context, Caleb. Thank you. I think this is the first time that I've run across an organization of Jable's size that combines both indirect and direct procurement into one function. I think it's often more typical for organizations to separate the two functions, often because there's more energy or more attention applied to the direct procurement aspect, right? Things that create competitive advantage, being able to make sure you get that perfect and and right from the very beginning. That leads me to a question. Do the same resources within the organization negotiate both categories? What's the structural organization that you use to allocate legal resources to the procurement activity? As I mentioned, the team in Hungary is really the primary center of excellence, but we do have support in Asia as well to help manage some of the local procurement function there. But we've primarily split the focus within the center of excellence between the direct and the indirect procurement. So as you mentioned, we have a group of attorneys that is focused primarily on supporting direct and a separate group that's focused on supporting the indirect. Elevate had come to us at the time when we were just setting this up. So we weren't even at that maturity level. We were at phase zero and we knew this was going to be a journey and we were just starting down that road. We had realized that we had to develop and enhance the existing playbook. We knew that was just going to be a gargantuan task on its own to establish that intelligence and that analytics. And at the time, one of our team members, we had tasked her with being essentially a project manager for this you know, massive undertaking. And on top of that, given her the mandate to manage the inbox and the triage, and we had multiple ways of getting in touch with our legal team for procurement, but also for NDA support. And I think Dan's probably going to talk more about that. 
but you know, Elevate provided resources, not only dedicated legal resources for our team to help manage the tactical negotiation and contract review, but also an admin legal support to help our project manager undertake the administration, the records management, handle the intake, do the, some of the triaging for us. And it was a very effective partnership. Steve, you hit on an interesting point, and this is really what does make it impressive. What Caleb has done with this team is he serves really two widely disparate groups. There are separate business counterparts for supply chain in JBL than there are from the procurement team. And then within procurement, it gets even more finite because then we've got site-level procurement and we've got global procurement. There are many different tentacles reaching out for support, right? From this pretty nascent team, this global legal center of excellence that they set up in Hungary and really seasoned lawyers on the team and some really good project people. But it was a challenge, right? Because you you want to have consistent touch and feel with legal. And so one of the things that you know we did right away as far as bringing on the Elevate team was give them Jable account names, users, added them to Jable, you know, direct email lists. Really, as Caleb says at best, probably Jableized these people so that there wasn't really this sort of feeling between the Elevate team and his team there in Hungary that it was two different groups. There was a lot of cohesion and I think probably the average supply chain or procurement person would look at it and say, I wasn't aware those weren't Jable Legal team members. And that was the key to a lot of the success, I think. Dan and Caleb, are there any numbers that you can convey to our listeners? So any either increases in productivity, efficiency, any savings numbers that you're willing to share? That's a great question, Nicole. So I think, you know, I would immediately point to the turnaround time impact. One of our targets for quality and service delivery goes to timeliness, right? Our organization puts at a premium, timely, practical, and cost-effective legal services. And so one of our drivers is being able to respond quickly to intake requests for support and legal services. We saw a dramatic reduction in that turnaround time by adding the Elevate resources. The addition of the triage support helped us review and move matters much quicker. I think we were a five-day turnaround at the very beginning and we got it down to 24 hours. So we were turning around matters very quickly. On top of that, more of a intangible. Our feedback from the business was I would get emails from our key stakeholders saying, wow, the responsiveness has really improved. We're getting some great service here. So getting that feedback from the business was also a good sign that we're moving in the right direction. I think another anecdotal metric was the overall morale and advancement in terms of the work that was being performed, the quality and just the excitement of the work being done by that procurement team. Because I think it's fair to say that we probably had that team at a breaking point and we had some really talented lawyers that would have been a disaster to lose that we ended up really being able to level up maybe two or three levels in terms of the work that they were touching because we could take some of this first line, second line work away. And so an impact I see is the work that those people are doing today that were, in my view, at risk in that team that are now high performers. And so that is really a difficult thing to put a number on and metric on, but really is what I view as one of the major successes of what we've been able to do here. I would just add to what Dan said in terms of impact. I think one of our key issues at the time we started this was NDA support. And I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but originally our team had been supporting 100% of the NDA reviews for procurement, and that was globally. So we had two people on the team that that was almost 100% of their work every day. And 
that was low value add, low impact work, we were able to reduce that by adding the elevated resources almost immediately to about 25% of their daily work. So they were able to actually prioritize other matters for indirect procurement because they were focusing on that area. I think you've both made some important observations about the potential for career progression and development within in-house departments, which is often a challenge, giving people a path, helping them understand how they're going to progress their professional careers. You come from a law firm where everyone's in lockstep from the beginning, and there seems to be a more well-established set of expectations around how a, a career grows. I think back to my own experience supporting procurement in a previous role. And not to say that it's distasteful work, it's not at all. You learn a lot of very important skills when you're focusing on procurement. I was focusing on indirect procurement at the time. The nature of indirect procurement in that organization was difficult to see a path where you're going to progress to senior level positions being responsible for procuring things like catering contracts and janitorial contracts and off-the-sell software purchases, et cetera. So my sense is that You've got now a, a better established path on how you can evaluate people to your point, Dan, make sure that the high performers that you value that have developed a lot of institutional knowledge and expertise about certainly the direct procurement, which I would view as more strategic, you can give people a path to grow. Someone starts off doing NDAs, maybe NDAs are too low level of a function to do internally at all. And so you look to outsource that. It doesn't create competitive advantage to be particularly good at NDAs. But then someone starts with indirect procurement in certain job classes and purchasing categories, then moves into direct procurement, and then can move along a professional continuum of expertise. So I applaud you for being conscientious and proactive about seeing a way to allow people that career progression. That's great. Well, Steve, I think one of the ways that you advance too in your career is having to show someone what you do and be able to convey that to them in a way that they can actually pick it up. That's a whole different level of learning. While we probably weren't going out of the gate trying to solve that problem, it inadvertently did happen. And I think some of the roles these people have are bigger. That was one of those impacts you weren't expecting, right? That you now have these people that have been able to advance quicker than you might have expected. Were there other surprises? Were there reactions from other part of the business? Were there other things that came out of having or creating the center of excellence that when you started the project to do so, you didn't think you would have? We hadn't had the ability to work successfully with what we call LPOs in the past. We'd had relationships with them and we saw them as more tactical than strategic. And I would say that coming out of the gate, we had low expectations, right? In all candor. And what we thought we would get was simply a, a touch or a turn of the document and not a lot of value add. And so when we saw that the integration could be seamless as making them part of our team, an extension of our natural team, that opened up a whole new avenue for us to consider before that we wouldn't have thought possible with an LPO solution. So that was a surprise to us. And I think we were delighted by that. And we saw the opportunity to continue to grow that partnership long-term. Even today, we've you know, just recently signed uh, another SOW where we've expanded some support for our commercial team, which Dan will tell you years ago probably wouldn't even been considered because it's so important to the core of our mission. And that's something we feel confident now today as we sit, having seen the success, having been able to show this story of our path and convince others that this is the right way to go. Caleb, that reminds me of the question that I intended to ask, and that is whether or not you had seen those progressions from initial levels of complexity deeper into the business and areas where your own internal lawyers felt like the routinization, the project 
standardization left them confident enough to look to other areas of the business and whether or not you see an extension of that? I mean, are there natural limitations about how these centers of excellence can function, whether they use an outsource provider or not? Have you constrained yourself on how far you want to take this? Or do you envision yourself getting into more and more strategic areas of contracting within the center of excellence? Yeah, Steve, I think you know, for us as an organization, we're not keen to add resources. And I think the challenge is we're always limited in terms of moving in that direction. So we have to think of ways that are unique and clever to find solutions that don't add cost or headcount where we can avoid it. So you know, we look at automation, we look at artificial intelligence, we look at contract lifecycle management solutions to help us be more efficient, to have training with our business so that they're able to take some of the day-to-day work and manage it themselves, right? If the work can get done closer to where it's happening, for us, that's a much more efficient solution. So that is our strategy. And as we move in that direction, it's inevitable that we're going to add heads, but we just don't do it as quickly as, say, other companies of our similar size, right? I think when you look at a company like Jabil, you think, oh, wow, they have an unlimited war chest. And it's just not the case. You know, As a manufacturer, we've got razor-thin margins. So you could be a $2 billion company and be similarly situated to us in terms of what your strategy is and how you're approaching these solutions. And I think when you look at an Elevate partnership, you're thinking to yourself, how can I add additional hands to free up my hands so I can be more strategic and work on projects that are going to move the top line revenue and the margin for the company? And that's how we really think of our strategy. So when we talk about these centers of excellence, we're always thinking about ways to try to innovate and keep costs uh, manageable. You know, Steve, while Caleb has a team in Hungary, there are elements of that team that extend beyond that physical boundary. And really, as we're expanding and what Caleb alluded to and what I would mention next is our big next impact with Elevate was the NDA support. That happened out of Phoenix, Arizona. And the new SOW that he's talking about that's really customer-facing, and as Caleb mentioned, is an absolute new frontier. Nothing that I was surprised that Elevate could deliver, but that you know I had a lot of selling internally to do. Caleb's a person that I've worked with for a long time. So our interpersonal work relationship of knowing that I wouldn't send him down a path that was blind. We've moved from procurement, which as you know well, Steve, indirect procurement is probably the safest group you could possibly hand over to some newer hands, right? NDAs, which was our second area of involvement with the team, that came while Jabel was dealing with, I'm sure, you know, all of your customers have with the pandemic and with headcount pressures. And so we had a variety of people handling NDAs throughout the team at multiple touches in a really resource draining way where a lawyer could be in the middle of a major negotiation with a new customer or coming back to Cisco, dealing with an issue that new to the business, but longtime customer. And then have to pull away because it was a high-level NDA with a high-level customer that needed to be met with tomorrow. And so there were all these little touches. We needed a solution. And that was where I felt we needed somebody in the U.S. We needed somebody on a time zone that would work. We have a lot of West Coast customers, but we also have a lot of East Coast customers. So Phoenix and the Elevate site that you have there seemed like the right place to find a resource. And Kayla knows well because... A lot of our NDA support work goes to the procurement team that this was a big departure. We were going to give a much bigger role than we would have to a third party as far as letting our customer NDAs, uh, but also a big part of what the procurement team was doing fall into this you know safe set of hands on a really talented resource, really good lawyer that we've worked with. And one of the things that I was working on at the time was to have some automated workflows for the NDA process. 
We weren't there yet, but we needed a lifeline to get there. And then we needed a safe set of hands for things that fell out of the automated process. And that's really what we found with this resource out of Phoenix, as well as the Elevate management team that worked on escalations and training, integrating them into the procurement team that's based in Hungary and Poland. Really big impact in terms of freeing up maybe a five to 10 year lawyer on our team that is working on customer contracts from having to do first, second, even maybe third time reviews of NDAs because we had a very defined process for that lawyer to take on and and the person did a really good job with it. You mentioned the benefits of defined processes, Dan, and it reminds me of past conversations you and I have had about determining which work should remain in-house versus the work you should outsource to someone or to a centralized resource like a center of excellence. Mm-hmm. Centers of excellence don't always have to be external resources. They can be a, an amalgamation of internal resources. But one of the key aspirations that I've always had throughout my legal operations journey thinking about centers of excellence is a bright line distinction between things that I could routinize and get predictable around. And my aspiration has always been If we're responding to third-party paper, that probably requires a different level of sophistication around reviewing that particular contract or transaction. But if we have enough bargaining leverage to use our own templates, my operating assumption has always been that we should have enough familiarity with our own templates that we can routinize those in a way that automation becomes an option or standard fallback provisions and playbooks become an option so that you can then centralize that function in one location, whether it be an outside vendor or internally within the function. And so I'm proud to say at some organizations, we've gotten pretty close to that. I wonder if you have other goal sets that you've put into place. You've mentioned some of the successes you had around cycle time reduction, responsiveness, improving the internal perception of the legal department through effective work from the COE, the Center of Excellence. Are there other metrics that you're aspiring to hit at this point? Are there ways that you intend to measure yourself going forward? I've got a pretty lean team myself in terms of legal operations. We've got a broad remit. What I try to do is get something like this moving and then make sure it's moving in the right direction. I would have to defer to Caleb now if he has any kind of next level plans. But I think, you know, Steve, a global operation like ours, we're often playing catch up, right? As much as this business changes and the technology changes, we're really just trying to be flexible and be agile. So I don't really see anything that is where we're trying to get too far ahead. We're just trying to be able to keep responding to what's coming up. But Caleb, what do you think? I think the example we've been talking about with the NDAs and the playbooks, you know, having that as a routine document that's largely the same in and out every day doesn't take very long to review for an attorney, but when you have to process you know, hundreds of them, it adds up. Having that playbook is an effective way to get that off your hands. I think, like Steve mentioned, it's, it's harder to do when you don't control the paper when it's third-party paper, but we still are looking at ways to mature our process, especially on the customer side, so that we can effectively bring in an Elevate type of solution with our customers and have that same level of confidence that they're going to understand our positions, be able to follow our playbook, know when to escalate, know how to manage a customer in those different and very difficult negotiations without burning goodwill, which is key for our business, but also being able to advocate for Jable's positions and risk profile in an effective way. So I think over the next two, three years, I think we're planning to mature that process from where it is today. And I think our goal would be something similar like we've done with the NDA process, where we partner with 
an Elevate type of resource where we can help build that intelligence over time and enhance our current toolkit. That's great. Thanks. I love that. You've seen it work. You have confidence. And the point that was made about going from tacticals to strategic initiatives is terrific. Is there anything that either of you want to add about what you have automated, how you have used AI? Sure. So as I mentioned, when we were looking to deal with the constraints that we had in terms of headcount reductions, the NDA workflow process that I was working on was nearly done, but still needed another three to six months to really do a a global rollout. I think a big part of being able to hand over things to Elevate as far as the NDAs, we've been working on universal template for NDAs that we could drop DocuSign coding into and drop that coding into our larger SAP environment for vendor renewals, supplier renewals, which we have thousands of. And so we have adopted the same moniker that Elevate uses, I know, the instant NDA which is a pre-signed NDA so that the real approach is that it gets closer to, as Caleb would say, the, where the real work is being done. Somebody needs an NDA, they don't have to come to legal. There's a workflow. It's a few fields they fill out and it kicks it off. In my most recent check, we've had 8,500 instant NDAs processed since about three years ago when we finally did get this in place, which means zero legal contact and zero variation from our standard template. Part of that was taking our standard template and saying, what do we really need here? What does the other side really need here? And having those internal debates over, well, we've never agreed to that. Well, we have lots of times. You just don't know because it's not in our starting position. Let's find a happy medium that we can live with as good business partners. Once we got there, the combination of the efficiency of the technology, as well as just the fairness of the terms, really eliminated a lot of the need that we had to do the heavy lifting we did with NDA negotiations. As I said, 8,500 at a couple hours to each one of those. And those are real lawyer hours that we don't spend. And I think Caleb's point is a good one that we're looking for that next NDA type template or document. We've bounced a few ideas around on the customer side that are very close to documents that we could really pre-sign that we'd need to get ourselves aligned on first and then find that opportunity. In doing that, you really refine your template, you refine what you're comfortable falling back on, and then we're ready to add the technology and the workflows into it and find that next area. Not to take anything away from anyone in in any function, but really to elevate the work that they're working on and not have to stop doing important legal work to do the things that keep the lights on. Yeah, that's a really important observation, Dan. A couple of things you touched on there, the analysis of the risk in the transaction. As lawyers, we all know that it's probably malpractice not to have an NDA, but the last time an NDA became core to any material litigation that I'm aware of is, frankly, I can't come up with an example. The risk profile that you're dealing with is an important consideration when looking at other types of agreements that are appropriate for routinization. And they exist in every industry, right? I think sometimes as lawyers, we get kind of seduced into thinking that there's no error rate in legal work, that there are no mistakes made. And that's just not practical. Every system has an error rate and that has to be married up against the magnitude of the loss that might occur if one of these goes badly. At 8,500 transactions at two hours apiece, you can do some simple math to see how much you've saved. In terms of the level of effort, it's harder to quantify the opportunity cost that you gained by allowing people to focus on other higher margin work. But I think once you start to do that math and then say, well, what if one of these NDAs did go a little bit sideways? You know, how many of them would have to go sideways in order 
to eat up the benefit of taking some of those reasonable risks as we do legal work. I think one of the mistakes I made as an early in career lawyer was to assume that everything had to be bulletproof and perfect in every way without mm-hmm. accounting for the cost of that. And a lot mm-hmm. of times we pass that cost on to the client as we're in-house practitioners now. The client is paying our salary. And so it gets a little bit more important to do that analysis. So thank you for that observation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's the big difference between bringing in top lawyer from the outside and working with somebody that's been doing in-house work for a while is that innate understanding that, and it really is kind of something that has to become innate, right? It's not anything you can really playbook. These are the things you should care about. You just get a sense of it over the years and finding a way to marry that up with process and really then technology so that you can let the little things go a little bit and not have that outside counsel view of everything having to be completely ready to go to the printer, as we'd say. Right. I had a good friend and colleague who made the observation. He was not a lawyer, but worked within our legal operations function. He asked me one day, he said, Steve, why do lawyers spend so much time polishing cannonballs? It's such a powerful visual, right? That for a cannonball, you need it to be round. You need it to fly straight. It needs to be relatively within the weight that you need, but you don't need to see your reflection in it. And (laughs) oftentimes lawyers, we slip into that mode of polishing cannonballs. So my exhortation to new lawyers when doing some coaching is to use that example and say, really assess at what point are you polishing the cannonball? I can already hear Caleb reusing that one with his team. Two strong impact stories. What's next? There is a next. I'd love to hear about it. I think it's just that next template type. We just don't know what it is yet. You have to make time for these sort of things. And the payback is obvious. We have to pick the right one, the one that the business will be comfortable with, and then put our shoulders into it. It's coming. Dan, Caleb, thank you for sharing your experiences with our listeners. Steve, thank you. It's great to have you all as guests. Tune into the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and ElevateServices.com.